Welcome to Give Theory a Chance. In this episode, we're joined once again by Seth Aberton, Associate Professor of Sociology at the University of British Columbia. Seth joins us to discuss what sociology can potentially add to the public conversation that surrounds COVID-19. In our conversation, Seth touches on the value of a number of theorists, including Emile Durkheim, Irving Goffman, and Jak Pankcep, who is best known for his research on rats laughing. Much of the conversation about the coronavirus has centered around either the economy or physical health. And this is by no means a surprise. These are two concerns that dominate our, our thoughts anyway. But however, what I'm wondering is what sociology has to offer to this conversation, because I think it's been relatively absent. So are there these sociological questions or concerns that you see not getting the attention they deserve? Good question. Uh, you know, it's kind of bizarre. So there's two sorts of ways one could answer this. There's the Twitter way, which, you know, I'm an avid Twitterer and also Twitter follower. And then there's sort of the more general public persona. And on Twitter, it's actually been pretty remarkable just how active it seems. Maybe it's because of the, the algorithm and the fact that I follow a lot of sociologists, but it seems like sociologists are quite active on this. And, you know, the bigger questions that are being raised, obviously racial disparities and access to health and also, you know, disproportionate corona cases and deaths, as well as you know, now the focus on mental health has become sort of a a bigger deal. But, uh, you know, it really does underscore the fact that more generally speaking, you know, in the public, when you read news articles or you read pop media articles, sociologists are somewhat absent from this conversation, both in terms of talking about the economy, because I think we're often caricatured as hardcore Marxists and anti-capitalists, anti-neoliberalists. And so the question is, what would we learn from a sociologist, a serious sociologist of economy or of organizations? But I I do think that that's one of the things missing is what do sociologists have to actually say about the economy and physical health? Why are we not getting out there more in the public? And what's going on about social psychology, emotions, and mental health? That's, to me, probably the most relevant thing sociologists can bring to the conversation is how is isolation affecting people? How does people's living situations in terms of the composition of the people that they're self-isolating with? Is it one person? Is it a couple? Is it a family? You know, how do those sorts of group dynamics shape mental health and the variations in what people are feeling and experiencing and needing? And to me, those are central core questions of sociology. Yeah, that's interesting. So it seems like you brought up two different points there. And the, the first is that we have these other questions that sociologists can bring attention to. So something like mental health, the, these questions of isolation. But then the other point that I think is really good is that it's not that we can't talk about the economy or physical health. It's that we have a different perspective on it, and that isn't getting out there either. Yeah, and those are one of the more annoying pieces about being a sociologist is that, I mean, one of the most well-founded subfields in sociology for several decades, since the mid 60s, I would guess, and maybe even earlier, is the sociology of economy or economic sociology. And, you know, it's sort of like close relationship of organizational sociology. And these are people who study not just economic organizations, formal organizations, but people study hospitals and the healthcare system from an institutional and organizational perspective. And it's not as cut and dry as businesses are bad, organizations are bad, we need to like tear it down and rebuild it. I think we have more nuanced. I know that's a dirty word, but we have 
more expansive and different perspectives that are worth putting out there. Turning back to the second point that you made about this idea of the connections people have or the dangers of social isolation. Last time you're on the podcast, and I suppose it's worth noting that you're the first repeat guest on this podcast. So I probably owe you a, a t-shirt or something when I come out with that, some sort <laughs> no, of award. I would proudly wear that. Okay. And I don't know whether I'm really deserving of being the first repeat, but I will, I'll take it. I'll work on designing something. Uh, but the, the first time you came on, the topic of conversation was Emil Durkheim. He's the person I'm seeing invoked the most. And, and I'm wondering if you could talk a bit about why Durkheim is this theorist that people are turning to now. Yeah. So, I mean, we're all taught in intro and theory courses and in various substantive courses. You know, there's these basic paradigms to sociology. Structural functionalism is one, conflict sociology is another, and then symbolic interactionism. These are sort of oversimplifications, but Durkheim is usually one of the three great saints along with Marx and Weber. And so when whenever we go to frame, to sort of use a heuristic device and sort of frame uh, a discourse, we, we go to one of those three you know, sometimes we dig into somebody else. But uh, Durkheim was the one who was, as Luke said, was feared or terrified by the disintegration of society. And, you know, his big question was, how do these large urban, industrial, complex societies that emphasize individual liberty and individualism, how do they integrate, you know, these big diverse populations in ways that don't overrun the individual, but maintain a healthy balance and give people the sort of social, physical, mental, emotional support that they need. And so it's, you know, he's, it's an easy person to point to. And, you know, he has a long legacy of influencing many, many people. You know, I was reading Eric Fromm the other day and a, a quote stood out that was, was perfect. And Fromm in his book, Escape from Freedom says, to feel completely alone and isolated leads to mental dis integration, just as physical starvation leads to death. And we're not really in a period of that severe, I think, mental disintegration. But certainly, you know, this would be a concern that Durkheim had, that people couldn't hang out with each other, that, that these ritual occasions that are recurring and ramified and emotionally satisfying couldn't actually occur. And that would sh stress him out. And I think it's easy to, to point to him as a result. One of the few places where I am seeing sociologists get a little bit into the public sphere in conversation is we have this way that we're conflating physical distance with social distance. And there's this idea that you need to be a, a, a good citizen at this point. You need to maintain social distance, right? That's the term that's being used, but that's not really what we're referring to. And there's two different challenges present, right? You have to keep physical space from people. But what we're trying to do and what we're craving is ways to maintain those social ties. Right, absolutely. It's one of the first things that popped up in the first couple of weeks when, and it wasn't, it was sociologists primarily, but you know, there were some broader social scientists getting into it. But really, the argument was we shouldn't call it social distancing. We should call it physical distancing because people should still continue to connect one way or the other, which then, you know, led to a series of like serious but also uh, cliched memes about Zoom calls. Or everyone was kind of armchair Irving Goffman or a, a neophyte Irving Goffman just observing the bizarre things that we we're all experiencing. But, you know, Durkheim's point was, you know, if he was sitting here, he'd be like, yes, be a good citizen, physically distance, but we have to be careful of, of just how much we social distance. That is just how much connectivity we lose. And, you know, one of the cool things that have happened, and I'm not so sure whether people have been collecting data on this or not, but one of the questions that has been lingering in sort of the interaction rituals tradition is whether or not online ritual occasions, online, you know, assemblies are as 
powerful uh, producer of collective conscience and collective effervescence as the kind of co-present rituals Durkheim would only be familiar with. And I remember Randall Collins in Interaction Ritual Chains raised this, and this, that was 2004 before the internet became anything like it is today. But he argued, and, and I don't know whether he's changed his, his perspective, but he argued that online could never fully reach that. There was something about the physical presence of being another maybe the smells that we actually don't perceive as strongly as other animals might the sort of electricity that is maybe present between the way our brains are firing maybe the sweat and the the palpability the ability to see our full bodies of course is a really big deal because we communicate so much through body language but i think I think we've got some answers, at least anecdotally, that online, at least teaching classes, having happy hours, social hours, like online is not quite as satisfactory as co-present, right? And so social distancing is a problem. It's, it is a problem, I think, right now. And this is completely anecdotal at this point. I'm moving away from being a proper researcher or a yes. proper sociologist. <laughs> but one, one of the things that I've been interested in is how there seems to be a certain window where it works, right? So for those first two weeks, you hear a lot of celebration of, oh yeah, I'm, I'm connecting to all these people online. I'm having that online happy hour with friends I haven't seen for a while. I'm enjoying it. I still feel like I'm part of a community. And then it's a month later and people are saying, well, you know, that online happy hour doesn't seem to have that same payback as it did before. So I wonder if there's a way that the online can be a substitute, but only when it's still connected or it's recent that you've had those physical connections. I think you're right. I think every, there was like a built up tension and the technology was suddenly thrust upon us and it felt good amidst the sort of emotional distress that people were experiencing. And it felt really good. But then, you know, it, it also has all the same problems that anything else has you know so i start seeing on twitter for instance people complaining that you know they're introverts and now they're being thrust into having a zoom meeting after a zoom meeting after a zoom meeting and they don't know where to escape which is funny because they're stuck at home but all the trappings of modern life and real life are are there on zoom but it without i think a lot of the payoff and i you know micro linguists probably are so excited because turn taking and all that stuff is so difficult. And in when you have like four or five or 10 people on a Zoom call, it's almost impossible to uh, actually have a satisfying conversation. The thing that inspired me to, to ask you to come on to talk about this was you recently had a post on your website and it had the rather, uh, rather happy title of <laughs> Panic Grief or the Pain of Social Distance. And when I saw that title, I initially thought that, all right, this is where you're going to work through some of Durkheim's concepts. You're going to explain some of the challenges that go along with not having a connection to the community. But you didn't bring up Durkheim at all. And instead, you turn to, um, and I'm going to do my best with the pronunciation, I think it's Jake Panksepp, who is a neuroscientist, and you used his ideas to build your argument. So I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what Panksepp can help us understand about our current predicament. Well, you know, I, one of the things I, I was thinking about when I wrote that, I mean, partially, I was just, I've been really kind of immersed in affective neuroscience in the last like three or four months. One of those things where I, I'd gotten sort of bored with some of the emotions literature and trying to find some new things to excite myself. And, you know, one of the things that Pinksep does that it seems so passe in sociology today, but when, when we think about the brain and, and the underlying structure, it offers us a path to thinking about, again, some of the universal features of being human. And, you know, sociology spends so much time trying to prove and argue and demonstrate and underscore human differences. Right? And some of those differences are 
truly important, right? Uh, so, I mean, directly related to coronavirus, uh, racial disparities in access to healthcare and access to important healthcare, life-saving healthcare is a big deal, right? I mean, that, that's a major difference. But at the end of the day, humans are humans. And what Pangsep does is he identifies these sort of universal affective systems that all mammals have and that are obviously intensified in primates and especially in humans. And so this the experience that we're all going through right now. Yeah, there's differences again, right? If you're a single person living at home, self-isolating, it's going to be very different of an experience than myself, who's stuck at home with a four-year-old, a one-year-old and my wife. But the emotional side of it is is universal. I mean, it's activating the same spaces in our brains. And so there's something common going on. And I think Panksepp really sort of pushes that idea that there's something really common to many of these challenges that we face. And it's in those moments that these affective systems are so interesting to think about and to consider how they interact with sociology. What are some of the challenges as a sociologist to engaging with research coming from neurology and psychology? Because there, as you said, there's not really that tradition in sociology. You know, it's, it's interesting because it seems like a lot of sociological theory and also cultural sociology is kind of going that direction towards paying attention to the cognitive. Mm -hmm. But I'm wondering, doing this type of work, reading this person who doesn't come from from the, the sociological tradition, how does that work? What, what type of things do you have to pay attention to or what struggles are there? Well, you know, there's a learning curve, obviously, for, for me. I'm not trained. I don't know the brain's anatomy, the architecture of the brain very well. And so there's words and things that I don't know anything about that, I, that you have to learn. And, and there's always the, the fear, just like learning any new literature, there's always a fear you're an imposter and that uh, you got something wrong or you're misinterpreting or misusing somebody's work. And, you know, what reviewer in sociology or what critic in sociology would be able to, other than someone who's read it, be able to give you the type of feedback you need to learn and to, to evolve. So in a way, without taking a class from someone like this or knowing other scholars who study these types of things, you're at a disadvantage. And so there's just that. And then there's this the, the part that sociologists recoil, not all sociologists, so many sociologists recoil at anything biological, anything inside the body, inside the brain. And, you know, I don't really see that as a legitimate fear, a legitimate reaction, because there's so much to learn. And on the flip side, most of these neuroscientists know nothing about sociology. And so they have this Panksepp's got this great set of affective systems, these seven affective systems, and they're all rooted in the social environment and social relationships. And they're all rooted in the idea that the brain is plastic. And so that their primary system, so they, they operate before our cognition and they often dominate our behavioral functions, but our brain is very plastic and what types of resources we get angry over when we fear they're being taken from us or when they're taken from us, what resources we fear being lost, what resources we seek, right? Or when we experience panic and grief over the loss or potential loss of, a, of something cherished, some sort of social object to which we're connected. Those are completely culturally shaped, environmentally shaped, but the neuroscientists don't have that language. They don't have the training that we have. And so there's, it's weird that we don't have more conversations uh, because I see there's a lot of fruitful connections and we could essentially talk to each other in, in healthy ways and create some cool, you know, new theories. Because a lot of what they're finding is not radical. You know, like all the stuff on mirror neurons, all it didn't challenge Mead or Cooley. It didn't like undercut symbolic interactionism, but it actually provided some of the core biological or neurobiological explanations for why we can take the role of the other 
And so, you know, I, I don't know. I, I find knowledge in general to be fun, to be cool, to be interesting. And so I, I don't see why sociologists would be scared of it. But those limitations are real. You know, and publishing, again, something like this is challenging too, because how do you find a reviewer is one of the points I pointed out. But also, you know, you're bound to get a reviewer who's going to say, this is reductionism, this is boring, this is de- too deterministic, and just dismiss it out of hand. You mentioned a, a few times these seven different affective systems that uh, Pengsa mm-hmm. provides us. Could you give an example of taking those ideas and taking a sociological perspective on it? What does that help us understand about this current situation and specifically? Well, so, so okay, so the title of that, uh, the post was Panic and Grief. And so one of the social systems that we have, or one of the affective systems we have, is rooted in one of the earliest, and it's, it's evolved, it's to protect all species, all mammals from dying out, is one of the first moments of intense negative emotions that an animal will feel is when a neonate, a baby, loses sight of its primary caregiver. And that activates the system and it feels intense panic. And anybody who can remember back to their childhood when they were in a mall or a baseball stadium or something like that and lost when they were like four, they lost sight of a parent, you feel immediate panic takes over your entire body. And anybody who's a parent who's lost sight of their kid knows this feeling too. So these are, you know, some basic emotional things. They're designed for us to seek out the thing that we need most, especially when we are in our our most vulnerable states. But this system is not just designed for neonates and caregivers. It's actually designed for any social object to which we become attached. And so part of what this post was thinking about was what are we feeling? And, you know, it's weird to think of the feeling of panic or or what I think is more relevant here because it's not like a sudden loss. It's more like grief. And we often think of grief as related to losing a loved one to death or losing like a a loved one who breaks up with us or divorces us. But really what I noticed in the first two or three weeks was just intense grief. And it was grief over not being able to see the people we cared about, for sure. But it also became interesting to me that it was grief over a lot of things, just the the routines that we become attached to, you know, the, the office space that we become attached to, the objects that Goffman called our expressive or identity equipment that we become attached to. And we don't, we take those things for granted, how important they are, but just the way we drive to work every day or ride a bike to work, we suddenly couldn't do those things. And it was not, and and I think it was sort of like a, a culmination of a bunch of things that we had lost. And so to me, here's the system designed to protect us from losing our mothers or our fathers or some important caregiver. But here it was just being activated and dominating us in a lot of ways. You know, you see people's Twitter posts and they're these emotionally distressed Twitter posts, especially in the first few weeks where people just were freaking out. And we don't often think of those objects as really important, right? We think of in sociology, when we think of Durkheim, we think of social relationships, attachments to people, maybe attachments to groups. But we are attached to places and we are attached to objects and we're even attached to processes, to, to doing things over and over and over. And those things making us feel good, right? Oftentimes very um, low level of positive emotions. We don't notice them, but when they're lost, we definitely notice them. There's something fascinating and powerful about that though, because the other thing I noticed is that people would express a type of grief, but then they would almost apologize or have to justify it because a lot of people are experiencing what we would title, you know, real grief, right? You have a relative who's sick, Mm -hmm. you have a relative who's dying. And so people who were just feeling lost and sad over losing that routine they have would say, I'm sad about this, but it's also like, yeah, but I know I still have my job, so I shouldn't be feeling that bad. So it's just Mm -hmm. almost this 
strange thing where you feel bad, but you're not allowed to feel bad. And that leaves you in this liminal state where you're uncertain how to have that emotional response. Yeah, absolutely. My wife and I were talking about that very early on where you feel guilt for sure when you stop and you think about, okay, well, so far I've been very lucky. No one I personally know has been affected by this. No one's gone to the hospital. No one has passed away. No one's gotten like critically ill. And that makes you feel better. And then you have that sudden instinct and you're like, oh, wait, but I have been complaining about this. And to complain is so human. And a lot of people always think of Durkheim as pushing these positive emotions as like the key sources of connection to people. But again, there's a whole chapter in the elementary forms of religious life on piacular rituals, which is mourning rituals for lost people in a community. And negative emotions are just as powerful of a, a source of connection and bond. But it is true. It, it was it's weird and i think social media exacerbates it because you put yourself out there and then suddenly you have time to get some perspective and you're like oh wait was i being inconsiderate or or unsympathetic when again you're just really being a human that's one of the things that's so powerful about panks up and and the way you're working through is seven four affective systems because in a sense it gives that experience it grounds that experience right you can you can mm -hmm. understand other people having this different type of grief so, and other types of grief that we know how to mourn but here's this new loss that we can work through right right and to go back to a point that you had brought up earlier when you mentioned that you know those first couple of weeks like zoom just seemed so great so one of the most powerful systems, one of the oldest systems in, in Panksepp's argument is the seeking system. And this is the system that is it's positive emotions. It's what compels and motivates people to find resources. And resources, of course, being, again, a placeholder for a lot of things that we need. Obviously, water, food, shelter, clothing are the basic ones. But as we satisfy those things, other humans become resources. The social objects that we desire can become resources too that we seek. And I think that's what happened was a lot of people felt this grief and they, they it activated the, that seeking system. And for people who struggle to find things, obviously that would be the sort of, would like double up that, that panic grief. And for those who did find it. It's obviously very positive, but then it becomes diminishing returns as it's not quite the same as that sort of co-presence. And I mean, I think that things have changed too. And, and that's another thing. This is, a, this is the problem with doing research at a moment like this is things change so fast. It, it strikes me now that we're all somewhat acclimated to this. And that's really a testament to how our brain evolved and how we Good we are at handling these massive changes and i think it's also a, a testament to hollywood priming us to believe that dystopias and disasters and societal breakdowns with these crazy extreme punctuated events like waking up after a coma for a week and suddenly there's just zombies everywhere right and and that's just probably not how most breakdowns occur and yet we've acclimated it but still grief is there it's just not as sort of command of a presence because our routines are lost now people are thinking about what the future holds and whether or not those routines will happen again whether or not we will shake hands and i think also now people are really starting to get that sort of deeper sense of pain where they've really started to think about well okay how long will this last and what will be lost forever again my wife and i were talking this morning about the fact that we won't be able to see our nephew's birth uh, he'll be born in like a few weeks and he lives in Los Angeles and we live in Vancouver. We won't be able to see his bris. And we missed the our first nephew's bris because my son, second son was born, right? Like they were back to back. And so like things like graduations, weddings, births, I mean, these major status passage rituals are gone. And so now we're kind of just in these weird low level ritual occasions of 
propinquity and convenience. We basically, if we, I live in a house that's split into four uh, different apartments. And so my neighbors who I didn't know before this, we have social distance happy hours because it's better than Zoom. But is it really that satisfying? I mean, it's it's sort of a quick buzz because it feels good to like be physically near people and talk to them, but it doesn't have that sort of weird, deep emotional biography that a lot of our most cherished relationships have. Now, do you know if they're going to listen to this? Or are they going to be offended by that <laughs> by that comment? <laughs> they they definitely won't listen to it unless I uh, send it to them. Okay. None of them are academics, but I, I you know what I think what would I think what they would say, and I'd like to hope that they would say that <laughs> is that I would actually say something that resonates, right? I mean, because they they have to feel. I mean, we are all human, and they don't know me at all. I don't know them. We don't. We where it's convenience. And now we have been able to hang out with some people who live in our neighborhood. Luckily, we live in a, a relatively dense and like young family type of neighborhood. So we've made some friends and can socially distance at a park. But it's really weird for my kids because they don't under they understand, but they don't fully understand. They want to play. They want to like actually activate that joy affective center because that's where they learn all the rules of interaction and that's where they build their strongest relationships but they can't do that because one parent or the other is constantly barking space space distance distance which must be really strange for them i want to end with two questions that are a little bit more rare in sociology and so we could think when students take sociology classes one of the things that often happens is at the end of the semester they say all right all this is great all these discussions are great but they're pretty depressing, right? We, we, mm-hmm. we work through all the different inequalities that exist. We work through all the ways that you may not have the agency that you think you do. So what I'm wondering here is, is there anything hopeful or empowering that could emerge from a more sociological take on living through this time? Or is the contribution from sociology really explaining all the different ways that that it is doom and gloom? You know, this is a question I think all of us get from our sort of insightful students every term, right? How do you live with knowing these things or being so cynical or depressed or whatever? I think if you take a very sort of snapshot focus of sociology, then it probably is all doom gloom. I mean, in fact, most of the research on stratification inequality like is hopeful for some sort of long distance future, but it seems like everything is problematic. But if you take a historical perspective, I think, yeah, I, I think things will be fine. I mean, nothing is ever fine. Like there's that's a value judgment. But a value neutral perspective, life goes on and things sometimes get better. Sometimes they get worse. But flu in 1918, 1919 killed, was it like 50 million people worldwide or some ridiculous number? Yet I saw a sociologist post the other day, I can't remember who, people went back to shaking hands, they went right to baseball games, they did all the things that they did despite the fact that it was obviously a horrific time and humans have survived wars and famines and droughts and all sorts of things and it changes sometimes again for the better, sometimes not, but we keep on going and I think waking up every morning is as good as you can ask for as a person. All right. So then final question. Do you have any pragmatic tips that can come from this type of sociological analysis? And I was interested in this question because one of the things I like about your post and and turning to someone who's a neuroscientist is it does focus on that experiential level. It does focus on that, the interactions that we have. So if we take that into account, and we take into account some of the challenges that we're currently experiencing, are there things that we can do to try to avoid that panic and grief or to try to, I don't know, maybe reproduce some of the connections that we would have otherwise beyond just that Zoom happy hour? 
Yeah, I, you know, this is, that's a hard question. I don't, my, my first instinct would be to say becoming more present and more aware that we do need these things and that these things are good and that there are things to life that are, are worth cherishing. There is something truly pragmatic about that, but then this will end at some point and most of us will go back to our lives and our memories are not as long as we wish they were. And, you know, there are always pressing matters that are just so much more important to us. And it's easy to forget that the sort of Buddhist idea of living in the present moment. But you know, what came out of this for me, and at first I saw my children being around all the time and all, and the decrease in my ability to work and the extra stress and the extra strain and things I had taken for granted, like how much messier things become when everyone is in the same space, using the same stuff all the time, how much more laundry is produced when people are not going out in the house. There's been so many good things from thinking about just valuing these three relationships I have in my everyday life and just valuing those things and also valuing the moments of seeing people I haven't seen in a while and just trying to just connect, ask more questions and just be more present, shut my phone off. But we all study various things that are problematic and it's hard for us to remember in our everyday lives how that informs us. You know, we all are are probably most sociologists are very serious about reading politics, both from an objective view and sort of their sociological view. But then when it comes to voting or when it comes to really thinking about it, they often act based on what Pangsep would tell you we act, which is these deeply rooted affective systems and things we learned from a long, long time ago. So I don't know if I answered that question, but I'm not entirely sure besides being present, what we can get from this. Cause I think we would feel the grief no matter what I, you know, people are going to lose it, but knowing that they're, will be an end to it is maybe another pragmatic thing that things change all the time even that idea that this is something to grieve over it's okay to grieve over not having your commute which is a very strange mm -hmm. thing to say but i found and find that incredibly powerful that thing that we found annoying before and now suddenly we miss and we feel selfish for, or stupid for missing it mm -hmm. that's actually something real and so when this is done taking those steps and being I usually don't use the term being present, right? Oftentimes sociologists would not, that would be not be their concluding statement, but there is a sociological way to think about that. I would agree with that. I, I think you're a hundred percent right. And I think, you know, to, to build on that idea, not feeling bad about grieving about any of the things that we've taken for granted. Like I get the sort of Marxist ideal of, you know, materialism, uber materialism and commodification as being problematic. And I feel that in a hyper capitalist society that that is obviously a bad thing. But missing your desk at your office, as weird as that sounds, or missing some of your books at your office, or the person who annoys you whose office you have to walk by, and their voice annoys you, like missing those things is just part of being human. Irritating things are just as comforting as uh, the things that we think we love a lot. That, that's a perfect point to end on. So thank you again for taking this uh, time to talk about this. I, I really appreciate you stopping by for the second time. Thanks, yeah, it was great. Appreciation goes to Jeffrey Gilbert for providing our theme music, undergraduate sociologists Beth Heberger, Alicia Rios, and Simone Graham for their help with the project, and most importantly, on behalf of me, Kyle Green, thank you for giving theory a chance. Mm -hmm.